Hi, I'm Edward Mullen, author of The Art of the Hustle. You are listening to the Edward Mullen Podcast. For more information about me, my books, or even this podcast, please visit edwardmullen.com. On this episode, I sit down with one of my doctor friends. Uh, He's a really smart guy and has a wealth of experience, so I essentially just pick his brain on a wide variety of subjects uh, for an hour and 20 minutes. So I hope you enjoy. So as you know, Sarah and I went away last week. We were actually in Chicago to see an evening with Kevin Smith live at the Chicago Theater. And so the night we got there, we wanted to try Chicago-style deep dish pizza. So right around, or not wasn't actually that close to our hotel, but within the what's called the Chicago Loop was Paisano's Pizzeria. Now, if you've never been to America, for some reason, their portions are huge. Uh, we Anywhere we went, we got these massive plates, and we could never finish it all. So we're at Paisano's, and we got this small Chicago deep dish pizza, and we ate maybe 75% of it. Well, exactly 75% of it, because it was cut in four slices. We had three of them. So we had one left. So we leave Paisano's. We get the last slice packed up to go, and we were thinking... We don't want this. What are we going to do with one slice of Chicago deep dish pizza, which we're not going to eat? So on the way back to the hotel, we see a person sitting down in the street in dirty clothing, uh, had the hat with some coins in it and a sign that said, well, I didn't read the sign, but, you know, she clearly looked like she was down and out and could use a slice of Chicago deep dish pizza. So Sarah and I approached her and said, hey, man, uh, would you like some food? It's pizza. And, you know, she was very polite, and she said, oh, yes, thank you, that would be great. And, you know, that was the end of it. Now, as I walked away, I was trying to think of how much time do I want to invest in helping this person? Like, I could I could have offered more, right? I could have offered her uh, to hang out with us to, uh, you know, because we're going to do a bunch of sightseeing. We could have paid for all those things. And I'm not too sure how much of those things she actually gets to do because a lot of those things are really expensive. And uh, she has to be on the street begging for, for money, assuming that's what she does uh, for the most of her, her week or, or life or whatever. So, you know, if we invite her, at the very least, invite her back to the hotel, maybe uh, she can uh, work out, go for a swim, get a jacuzzi, have a shower, feel what it's like to stay in a really nice hotel with uh, room service, you know, kick back and watch some TV. She wouldn't necessarily stay in our room, you know, we'd get her her own room. And in terms of like life coaching, you have two people, uh, me and Sarah, who seem to have figured some things out. You know, we're by no means experts, but, you know, we're a young couple, about the same age as she is, uh, yet we have enough money to go traveling and, and see shows like Kevin Smith, stay in nice hotels, eat at nice restaurants, have a good time. So if this was a jungle scenario where we came across a person who was on the ground and we didn't live in this civilized society and this wasn't, you know, there's no infrastructure and all that kind of stuff. And we came across somebody who was sitting on the ground in the forest and was shivering and shaking and had ants crawling on them. And we had the means to make shelter and get clothes, uh, shelter and get clothes, um, set traps, catch food, catch fish, uh, make tools, uh, make fire. Uh, we knew how to navigate we knew other things about like medicine and how to heal, uh, you know, and, and avoid certain plants. If we had that knowledge and, and we came across somebody say, hey, man, are you interested in, 
and you know, following us around for the day and you know learning what we can show you we can show you how to make a tool this doesn't have to be your life it doesn't have you don't have to just sit here and, and give up you know that person you would think would jump at that opportunity be like yeah of course because if that was me I would be like, of course, some, you know, uh, huntsman comes along or some really less Stroud type guy comes along, some, you know, survivor man, and he's got it all figured out. I'm going to hang on to every word he says because I'm humbled in the sense that I don't know. I'm out of my element. I don't know what I'm doing. You know, this crazy jungle of a world, there's a lot of complexities that I haven't figured out. So I would defer my knowledge to some some expert or someone who knows more than me at least but society is kind of like that society is a complex system where there's social cues and uh, we have to get jobs and and work hard and fill out forms and and pay taxes and figure things out and some people are better at it than others but if you try to offer somebody help that you think you could help them on some level they will rarely take it and there's a good chance that you'll offend them in the process so why is that? Yeah, you, you think that. I mean, yeah, certainly if you're, if, if it's a life and death situation, you'd certain, certainly want help. But per, possibly for her, it, it could have just been a choice. Right? And so she doesn't seem like there's anything wrong with her life. You might not think there's anything wrong. Uh, and so, I don't know. You believe that? You think yeah. for the majority of homeless people sitting on the street, if they had the opportunity to not do that, they would do that? Like, they, they would have to be amazed, like, when people are driving by with, like, uh, cars and, you know, people have houses and cell phones and, and nice clothing. You would think that would impress them, like, wow, how is it you, that you can afford a car? I mean, it, you're sitting you're sitting on the street with nothing. You must be so impressed by everybody walking around with, like, shopping bags. and <laughs> Or they're probably completely disgusted by our, our, our commercialism and, and, and whatnot, right? I mean... There, there's different subsets of uh, like we can only talk about you know Vancouver right? Let's, I'll, I'll talk about Vancouver and you know we, we've got several thousand uh, homeless persons on the streets and some of them by choice some of them are out there not by choice uh, some of them are out there because they have uh, medical problems which preclude them from being able to, to work and whatnot, and uh, uh, or they have dual diagnoses with uh, uh, psychiatric illness as well as addictions problems and because our we don't provide adequate services for them uh, and support uh, they end up on the streets and those that's really sad because sometimes they don't even recognize they that they need help right so I think that's the s- most unfortunate group um, then there's a subset that are out there because uh, they come from broken homes and they they don't know a better life and they there's a pattern of abuse and this is what they know Right? And that's, again, very sad. And they may or may not recognize that they need help. Then there's another subset who are, unfortunately, on the street. Um, I don't know, because uh, maybe because of what you, what you were talking about, well, maybe they flamed out in life for, for whatever reason. And perhaps those that subset are able to recognize, hey, there, there might be something else out there. Uh, I used to be uh, in, a, in a good home or whatnot, and now I'm not. Right? And maybe those are the, the people that you're able to to communicate and connect to. I don't know. In the beginning, you said that we ought to help these people. But there's stats that say that if you increase the amount of aid, you also increase the amount of dependence on that aid. So I think the study was saying uh, about homeless shelters and, and beds that they offer. 
And in Vancouver, if you offer, I'm going to make some numbers up because I don't re remember what the numbers were, but if you have 200 beds, 400 people will need them. If you offer 400 beds, 1,000 people will show up and they'll need them. If you offer 1,000 beds, 4,000 people will show up and need them. So it seems like there's a correlation. Like the more help you offer people, it doesn't actually cure the problem. It makes it bigger. Yeah. So it, it seems like if you offer people free handouts, it kind of makes it convenient to be dependent on the government, right? So what's the solution? Like, for instance, if you were on the street and you were panhandling and for an entire month you didn't get one nickel... Yeah. You would try to figure something else out. You wouldn't yeah, go back yeah. to that. But if you got 80 bucks a day and that afforded you, you know, not a nice living, but, well, I guess, you know, that you could, you could do okay with that. But, <laughs> uh, you know, you could get a meal and, and, a, and a bed and, yeah, yeah. you know, whatnot. You might be inclined to just continue that. Yeah. So it's, it, what I'm asking is like, do you think we should just give these people nothing and let, you know, nature sort them out or help them? But then again, it's, it might be a pride thing or an ego thing. Like, oh, I don't need your help, and I'm just gonna, uh, you know. And, and that's the thing they don't recognize that they have a problem because they want to protect themselves, the protector ego, because they don't want to fail. That, like, let's be honest. You say you failed in life. You're you're not successful. Oh, you you don't know that for sure, right? I mean, certainly. Well, you're a, not winning, right? There's, there's there's a lot of. It depends on your definition, of course. I think there's no winners that are on the street, right? I don't know. There's. I think there's. I think as a society, and if we, we if we want to say that we're a civilized, enlightened society, then we have a responsibility uh, to protect those that are most vulnerable and those that are most at risk. And we need to, we need to identify who those people are. And that's, you know, those are the first subsets of people I was talking about. Those who, uh, again, have dual diagnosis be, you know, between psychiatric disease and, and addictions. And a lot of times they need a lot of support. Um uh, people who you know are victims of abuse or, or whatnot uh, that uh, are on the street because of uh, basically abuse and and, and, and and cycles of violence in, in their life we need to identify and help them in any way we can right now then there's then there are other people who are out there because I don't know because they they want to not work I don't really know how to put it but you have a better way of saying it well, is that true though? Is that just a speculation? I don't. I don't, I don't know. I mean, well, I mean, what percentage of people do you think that were living an okay life, got laid off work, couldn't get uh, um, back to work, couldn't get, couldn't get a job, they had a couple mouths to feed, and they were just down and out, and yeah. they slipped through the cracks. Their welfare payments, uh, their welfare application didn't get approved. The job that they thought had lined up fell through, and now they can only afford to live on the downside on the east side. But you know, living on being on social assistance, living uh, with, uh, and, and then living on the street, they're they're two different things, right? I mean, you you can certainly be be you can be both, social, right? You can be on social assistance, uh, and unfortunately, they, they don't give you much. It's really hard to live there. Uh, they give you say nine hundred dollars, and the vast majority of that goes to your rent, right? And where are you going to rent for six hundred fifty dollars a month? It, it's not going to happen. Right. And um, I, I can't really speak to why, what are the other reasons that people are homeless. But all I know is that we, we need to we need to help those first two vulnerable subsets of, of people. And that can be any combination of providing them housing. Uh, you know, if they if they have addictions issues, 
uh, we have to either look at uh, recovery programs or harm reduction programs, and that's probably another completely different show altogether. <laughs> we can talk about that for hours, um, whatever way we can. But how many people do you know that, like, even your friends, not necessarily homeless people, that just don't get their shit together? They're capable, they come from decent families, and, you know, they might even have an education, uh, they ha have a job, but they don't take advice, or they constantly make bad choices, they're either constantly broke, or they're pessimistic, or they think the world's out to get them, they're cynical, they're, you know what I mean? It's like... How far do you go to help these these them, yeah right? it's like you could give a person like this advice and they're not going to take it so if you can't help this person how can you help the person that's you know on the downtown east side you know i think because our... it seems like a common human trait that's that's uh that covers all these people right i'll, I'll pull the conversation back away from homelessness for a second because it's 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 a issue that spans across you know the political spectrum healthcare you know social justice and stuff is huge but i can i can say that all right if you look at canada as a society right we like to say that we we protect the vulnerable like what i said earlier because we believe that we're an enlightened you know a civilized society um but then you look at a situation where without giving too much information where i had a had a patient who's from africa okay uh she has hiv she came here because of the uh, genocide in Rwanda, and she's out there working two jobs. She's not working out working two jobs because she uh, believes it's the her Canadian dream, but rather she's doing it because she she can't get a job that pays well enough to support her and her two kids. And I asked her why she didn't she go on social assistance because it'd be easier for her to go pick up her kids. And she said, "Well, it's because." I don't want them to see this as a viable lifestyle, an option for later on. Even though she's she gets up at 4 o'clock every morning and she works until 3, uh, so she goes to work by 6, works until 3, cleaning up uh, at care homes, and then uh, comes back, uh, cooks dinner, and then goes back to work and only sleeps for 4 hours and does that every single day. So you look at that and you go, how's that fair? And you, we have able-bodied Canadians who don't want to work, and certainly not everybody in social assistance don't want to work. A lot cannot. But certainly some abuse the system. And we say, how is that fair? It's not. Right? The point is, is that I think we can't police uh, how everyone's going to live their lives and say, this is not fair, this is not just. I think everybody really does things for their own reasons. And... Uh, I say kudos for, you know, uh, the patient that I saw who, who's doing that, uh, for, you know, trying to, to teach her kids something, a, a good work ethic, right? And we, I don't think it's the responsibility of society to, to tell people that, uh, you know, that, oh, you shouldn't do this or you shouldn't do that. Uh, you shouldn't go on social assistance or, or whatnot. Because you don't deserve it. I don't think we, we can say that. So not only do you think morally we can't say that, you think practically it wouldn't be feasible. Because the way I look at it is that if you have more help from society, like, you know, social assistance, it doesn't actually do anything to, to cure the problem. It just actually makes the problem bigger. 
So from a practical standpoint, I would think this isn't working. We need to do something. We need to do something else. Well, so okay. I'll play the I'll play devil's advocate here. Okay, so let's go to let's go to Asia. Let's go to some place that doesn't have social. I think Taiwan doesn't have social assistance. Okay, so you don't work, you don't eat, right? And so I don't think that's a great system either because. You can walk around and you see these eighty-year-old grandmothers pushing around food carts, trying to sell you something, or else they're not going to be able to eat. I mean, I don't think that's a great system either. All right, we need some program to help uh, the vulnerable and and those at risk. And I think that our problem is administering the help properly and identifying those who abuse the system. Right, it's the policing part that I think we're we're bad at. And it creates this idea that goes through our whole society that this the social assistance program is unfair, right? Because I think if I think if you know we're sitting here and we can say with one hundred percent certainty that the people who need help are getting help, and the people who don't need help are not getting that help, we'd be fine. We'd be pretty happy, right? But we have this idea that is not fair, and that people are abusing this system, and then therefore we have this conversation, right? So maybe the issue isn't so much about whether or not we should have the program, but how can we better、uh, police and identify the abusers of, of said program? What do you think of ego and pride in terms of how much this you know attributes to the problem? Because a lot of people are maybe、um, too too proud, or you know their ego won't allow them to、uh, address the issues that they have. So in theory. If you had a system like you know an ego management course in school or something from a very <laughs> early age, if that was a, a topic that we addressed, you、yeah. know, like、uh, personhood and how to be a person, how to how to be、uh, manage your ego, how to control your emotions, if these were actual semesters and courses that we put a lot of focus on, like we put a lot of focus on mathematics and language and all this kind of stuff, then you would think that they'd grow up and. People would grow up being open to suggestion and being open to、uh, not acting out, and、uh, and it would actually minimize the. You know, I think ego is actually the the root cause of every problem, which is kind of a bold statement. But if you look at if you look at every any problem, I can boil it down to how it's a problem with your ego. You know, just pick any problem like、um, in the world. Let's say like、uh, consumerism. That that could be a problem. Sure. Maybe. Maybe it's no, not sure a problem. No, go for it. Yeah. But the reason why we're constantly buying things is because we want to impress other people, or maybe because it makes us feel happy. But why does it make us feel happy? Because we've identified, you know, flashy objects or new things.、Uh, but that just serves the ego. It does has no other practical purpose, right? If you take, let's say, a disease like、uh, a problem in the world is,、uh, let's say, the flu. That's a problem, right? How is that ego related? How is that ego related? Let's find Edward, out. Come on. <laughs> okay, so and you're a doctor, maybe you can clear this up because I could be somewhat cynical, but I think that the reason why the flu is still a problem is because there's no cure for it, and the reason why there's no cure for it is because it's not economically viable to come up with cures for things. And the reason why you don't want to come up for cures for things is because if something is cured, then you can't make money off a problem that doesn't exist. So if you have people that need flu vaccinations and 
cold medicines and nasal drops and and tissues and all this stuff that goes along with flus and chicken soup or whatever then you can make money off that stuff it's a business so you can get that money for what for your ego so you can buy a big house so you can impress other people so you can keep up with the joneses oh my god edward that is so cynical um you know it might be true though right I think I think that could be true for certain diseases, but unfortunately, you pick the one where it actually has a scientific reason why we can't find a cure for it. It's because they, they, they mutate from year to year, and that's why our vaccines is a yearly vaccine, and uh, it's because they, they shift and they reassort. And unfortunately, flu is one that does that very easily, and and that's why we need vaccines every single year. It's unlike unlike, for example... Uh, you know, your chicken pox vaccine, which, you know, you pop it in and bam, you're pretty much protected for life until later on when you're 80 and your immunity wanes and then you get shingles or something. But uh, but for influenza, pick a different disease. Could be right for another disease. Is it possible that the flu is like that because it's been manufactured to be like that? Is that, is that it's not possible? It's the, it's the actual virus. We can get into that another time, but yeah, just trust me on this one. <laughs> Unfortunately, um, I'll, I'll give you an example though. I think I, I can I can kind of see where you're coming from. So we'll look at HIV medications. Okay, we'll look at HIV. Here we have is a chronic disease, um, but now with our new medications, uh, somebody who is now infected with HIV can live pretty much exactly the same normal life that you and I can, right? And we're looking that uh, we see that. HIV isn't really what is causing mortality with uh, with these patients, but rather heart disease, right? Uh, diabetes or whatnot. And why is that? It's because the medications that we have now are really good, and they don't—they're not that toxic anymore. But however, beyond the you know a few classes of medications that we have, the pipeline is starting to dry up in terms of new medications. Why is that? I don't know. It could be a money issue. The motivation to to create and develop new classes of medications essentially dries up when you've already have a good handle on the disease, right? Where's the new excitement in terms of developing new medications? Hepatitis C. We haven't had a really good um, treatment for hepatitis C uh, for many, many years for this really bad genotype called genotype 1. Uh, and now we have like bosepervir and teleprevir, uh, which, which is effective against this bad genotype. And now there's coming up with lots of new medications down the, down the road for that. But at some point, people are going to realize that, hey, we've got a good handle on this disease. We've got a cure for it. And then the, the drug companies stop developing new drugs for it. And they'll look for the next thing and the next thing. I don't know. Is that kind of what you're getting more, at? That, that's part of it because it's all driven by money. They're, they're, you're not going to invest money. Uh, I mean, there's more money into treatments than cures, right? Uh, everyone's interested in lifestyle medications, right? Yeah. I mean, so. like there's a lot of people that are, you know, uh, it seems like more people are drugged up these days. Not maybe not necessarily in this country, but uh, in some other countries, they they get prescribed all these medicines and things that they don't necessarily need. And there's one that has, uh, it'll cure your depression, but then it gives you, it, you, you can't sleep. And then, so you have to, you're on a sleep medication, but that makes you have, I don't know, headaches. So you got to take a headache medication, you know, they, and then they got you on like six or seven things. Yeah. I, 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 and it's all expensive. I think it, I think if you want to be really cynical, then yes, you can see it that way. But we also call that pretty bad medicine. You know, if, 
if you're say you go to your family doc and you tell them that hey I'm not feeling so good I feel a little down and they diagnose you with depression and then they give you a medication you got tons of side effects with it and then they decide to go and treat all your side effects with the more drugs that can give you more yeah we just call that bad medicine and you know maybe that first medication that they give you for the depression is the wrong one for you you know and so certainly that 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 happens but you know we don't definitely don't encourage it um I'm sure the pharma industry probably <laughs> encourages it, but uh, I certainly so wouldn't. So what um, determines what diseases get looked at? Because there has to be some agenda. Like, it's not like, you know, the funding to, to put into something comes from yeah. a, you know, a drug company. So they can essentially decide what they want to tackle. Yeah. So if something is not sexy enough or they can't make enough money, it doesn't get looked at. Like, nobody's making drugs for, you know, some disease that not a lot of people have because you can't make a lot of money off that or you have to ask yourself the question why is there so many medication for the common cold right i think that i think that's kind of what you're getting at sure. right like what's the big deal with the common cold really nothing really happens to you right you you have a cold that gets the sniffles and right. gets a red eye you're uncomfortable but there's so much so many medications for that and i guess that's why I really admire people like, uh, see, I'm going to say it, Bill Gates, dear God, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Part of it, they, yeah. they, a lot of their funds they use for neglected diseases, okay? And these are diseases that don't, what you were mentioning, don't quite have that uh, monetary uh, reward for a pharma to, um, to invest in, right? Every, that's why I was saying everybody, everybody, when I say everybody, I'm meaning pharma, wants lifestyle drugs. Drugs that can affect, that me and you can use on a daily basis. You just increase your market. Right. And it's kind of sad, but that's what it is. Um, you need, we probably need uh, a lot of, a lot of the, the problems, the medical problems that affect people in the entire world are rooted in politics and, and the social system. So we invest so much money uh, in uh, things like uh, diabetes and, and such. Because why? Because this is really a very huge first world problem, right? And uh, we put in a lot of money into HIV because it scares us. But what about something like diarrheal illnesses? Not that sexy, right? But that claims more uh, children in the, th in the third world than all these other things. And yet, how do we stop that? Well, we get some clean water, some stable government to provide clean, uh, a good sewage program, and uh, adequate nutrition for the kids, right? Why do why do why do our kids not run around dying of diarrheal illnesses? Well, because we have good food, clean water, and a good sewage system. But we're not going to fix any of that with medications. A drug company can't come in and just start bombarding their their water supplies with antibiotics. I mean, that's not realistic. You need stable governments. And so that's why you have drug companies wanting to make money, fair enough, and looking at you and me and seeing how can we fix our problems where, when, uh, because they can't really fix those third world problems because it's rooted in government. Right. What do you think about um, like the drug rep sales reps? Because they're kind of greasy, right? In the sense that... Uh. The doctors, the family doctors, don't have enough time to be an expert on everything. So Fair they enough. rely on a lot of uh, outsourced knowledge. And when people come in and mm -hmm. say, this is our new drug, 
But there's a conflict of interest there when you have a sales rep whose agenda it is to make a profit, right. uh, telling a doctor that their medicine is good and they take them up to lunch and buy them flowers and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> and and you think that's if you think that's not true, like because there's a movie Love and Other Drugs which showcases this. I actually witnessed this firsthand. I was yeah. in a doctor's office. A sales rep come in with flowers and he wanted to take the. He's like he's asked what's the doctor's favorite flavor of ice cream, yeah. and he was being really kind of cheeseball salesman. Fair and, enough. Uh, and it was, it was obvious what he was doing. So I if these people can idea. influence doctors with, you know, vanilla ice cream, then yeah. it's possible that we're getting prescribed things right. that we so, shouldn't So the, shouldn't CM, take. the CMA, the Canadian Medical Association, actually has guidelines on what uh, the interactions between physicians. And this goes from the family physicians who are on the front lines doing general medicine uh, to specialists in the hospital and whatnot. They're the same set of guidelines, and I don't know if we could pull that up later and, uh, and talk about it, about how you can interact uh, between people from the industry or, or pharma and yourself. Right? Just, and, and this was because uh, earlier on in the 80s and 90s, there was a, a massive conflict of interest when, say, I'm from the Edward Pharma drug company and I want to take uh, you and your lovely wife and your family down to uh, Cancun to listen to a drug conference on our new medication for erectile dysfunction, okay? So, and I'm going to tell you why our product's better than the other place, the other drug company. Obviously, you're going to feel quite beholden to this company, and that's just human nature. And so the so the CMA recognized that there is a huge problem with this, and they don't allow these things anymore. Um, I'm not a family practitioner, so I actually don't really know uh, how often drug reps actually go and speak to them. But I can imagine that, yeah, they, they probably use some of those techniques that you mentioned. And that to a certain degree, some people may may be more at risk of of listening to everything that the drug rep says if their air, if their knowledge has a particular area of weakness because they can't know everything right but uh, i can only speak to myself in 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 my area of expertise and the the drug reps that i i deal with they are actually quite they can conduct themselves actually quite professionally at, at arm's length and i think part of that is because they recognize that we know the literature, we know the evidence uh, much better than they do, because on a lot of situations, uh, the you know the specialists actually do write the evidence, and we know the strengths and weaknesses of all the trials, right? So it's very difficult to pull the wool over our eyes in that particular area. So they tend not to try to sell us these things, but do they go and say, hey, do you want to go for lunch uh, and talk about? this so-and-so yeah they, they always invite us out for these things but we usually we tell them that the only time only way we would go to one of these dinners is if it's part of an educational thing and they can't tell us what to talk about we can talk about anything we want to talk about to our audience and they have no control over whether or not we talk about their products at all because then a lot of times we don't so i think there's a difference I'm, I'm not really sure what goes on in the family doctor's office, unfortunately. But I think a, a lot uh, earlier on you were talking about changing the school system 
And I think that was a very bold idea uh, about trying to educate the the kids more to, to increase their essentially their emotional intelligence, right? I, that's that's what it sounded like. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a really great idea. But unfortunately, I think a lot of there would be a lot of resistance, mainly because people would say, Edward, where where does your schooling end and my parenting begin? And now you're teaching my kids how to act. And I don't think that's a responsibility. And I think that's where you'd have problems. I, th- I think you're right, but it's possible that within a few generations, that would kind of get eroded, right? Because the parents would have also gone through that same school system. Yeah, yeah. Right? So you say you could say, oh, no, 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 we're just prepping the kid. <laughs> uh, the real work goes at home. This is just a kind of a prep course. Yeah, I, I think that I think that, that's be easy. very forward thinking, actually. And, and, and you know you can recognize that in, in different sectors. I'll give you an example. We're seeing less of an emphasis on information, okay? Because information is becoming more and e- more and more easily readable, right at our fingertips, right? So, for example, when we were when we were kids growing up and learning in school, we, here we are thinking about uh, how to memorize these facts and figures and whatnot. And it's possible that later on, instead of having to memorize these facts and figures, which you would invariably forget if you don't use them, you're taught more to how do I find these facts and figures right, in an efficient and quick and organized manner. Right? And certainly I'm not saying information is not useful because certainly half of medicine is just it's a lot of memorization. But you can see that in, in, in medicine, uh, there's value in in the knowledge, but there's a lot more value now in in things like how you communicate with your patients, uh, leadership abilities. And we have these things called, I never thought I'd even quote this anywhere, but these CanMeds uh, competencies, uh, which are the medical expert is the core of, of the physician. You have to know stuff, essentially. I think that's the bottom line. You, you have to be an expert in your field or else you're pretty much useless to everybody. But wrapped around that are these competencies, or these expertise, which make you a more well-rounded physician. And these are things like whether you're a scholar, communicator, uh, if you're, you have an ability uh, to effectively lead others to affect change, you know, things like that. These are more or less soft skills, if you will, right? And you, don't re- you aren't taught these skills in school. But even in, in my world, you we're starting to recognize these are really important things. And so you're right. Maybe maybe we need to be teaching these skills at an earlier time in our education and less emphasize the the, the information part of it. I don't know. So, yeah, if, if that was adopted, I could see that being a course like, let's say, math or, or something like that. So essentially, it wouldn't really push out too much of the curriculum. So... In, in, in terms of memorizing stuff, you'd still have to learn about, you know, cheetahs and, and ecosystems and, uh, <laughs> and uh, Greek gods and, you know, sure. stuff you learn about in, in school, right? Sure. And you'd have to memorize that. And in order to, like, you know, tests are kind of archaic, but it kind of, it, it kind of is a way to ensure you've done the reading. So you've, you, you, when you get a diploma, it means something. It yeah. means you've done the work. Sure. Because if you can get that without doing the work, and be like, oh yeah, I read that chapter, and there's yeah. no real way to test whether you read it or not. Then the diploma means nothing. Right. Right. So, 
you have to test people, which, uh, so are you saying that maybe a good way is to, yeah, we will still learn about uh, history and, and learning uh, things about, you know, animals and stuff that might not impact our life that much. Uh, but instead of, you know, making you memorize it, you can, everything will be open book and it will really teach you your Google skills. And would you, would you say maybe a, a problem with that could be that you would need to expose kids to a bunch of things so they can figure out what their path is going to be. Because if you didn't, if you didn't put kids, uh, or expose them to a bunch of stuff at the end of the process of 12 or at the end of high school, they might not know what they're, they're into because they haven't been exposed to anything. So you'd have these really sheltered people that you ask them a question on a number of subjects and they have no idea. They said, let me get my computer and I'll Google it. Oh, man. So, so it could be a problem. You oh, essentially yeah, no, still absolutely. need people yeah. to... You still need to know stuff, uh, but you also need to know where to find stuff. But think about in elementary school, what did you learn? I don't remember anything. What, what did you learn? Is that well, we learned... Yeah, and, that's, and that's important. We learned the stuff, foundations, sure. right? And, but... You learn this. You actually do learn a lot of soft skills. You learn how to say things, simple things like "please" and "thank you," and and it's still important today as it was whenever you went to school. Uh, you learn to share like these things that you teamwork. Learned, yeah, these are these are all kind of soft skills that you learn when you're a little kid, and then and then you go into high school, and you're taught that. It's important to quote unquote work hard. Now they're starting to build your work ethic. Because you, how much of your high school do you remember? I don't remember too much of my high school. The the actual material, I don't remember. Well, yeah, but even though you can't necessarily recall facts that you learned, like Einstein has this quote that he says, "Education is what remains after one has forgotten everything that they learned in school." So I think that even though you don't know the facts you've been educated, you've been groomed in a certain way, and you're better off for it. And right. I think that's, that's a trick, right? We're recognizing where your knowledge stops and acknowledging when you need to find more information. Now they're teaching you things where they, they say it's important for you to learn how to learn, right? Learn how to learn. Understand, and then start to understand the social constructs of the world where, unfortunately, in our world, is very much based on popularity and, and hierarchies and that's kind of the, the high school experience then you get into college uh, or university or whatever your post-secondary education was and this was even more focus on this content and even less on these soft skills because what are your you're just a number now Right now you're in a class and they don't care how you do it, but you're just going to take this exam and you're going to get a mark. So you see that the the emphasis on those soft skills that you were talking about, about learning, about you know ego and whatnot, becomes less and less as you go higher up in your education. And there's more and more focus on this content. And and then you graduate and you get all these people that say, hey, I have this university degree and. I know how the world works. I mean, frankly, actually, you've been learning less of how the world works as you go along. And and then you get to a situation like me, and then you spend a whole bunch of years doing uh, whatever else. Uh, some people work, right? Go to work. Some people go to uh, even more schooling, like myself. And you start to realize that there's less, there's, there's generally less and less focus on those uh, content stuff. 
that you learned in university and more and more emphasis on interpersonal relationships, soft skills, and learning how to learn, adapting, and thinking and being creative. And those are the things that get valued as you as you work or as you go into medicine or whatever else, you, or law or whatever else you do. Because there's only a certain amount of content or information that you use on a daily basis for any work that you do. And within a few years, you're going to master that content. And then what? How detrimental do you think it is for um, kids to go through high school? Because um, there's a quote, Eleanor Roosevelt says, great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. So Mm. basically, if you think about people in high school, they don't know anything. Mm -hmm. Like relatively, they don't know a lot of things. So they can't really have a really in-depth conversation about a lot of things. Uh, It's so their, their, their knowledge is so kind of surface level stuff. Right. So uh, they can't really talk a lot about ideas and, and what was, what did she say? Ideas and what? Events. People. She can't really talk. Yeah. They can't really talk about ideas and events. So what do they do? They end up talking about people. They talk about gossip. So, so not only are you surrounding your kid by morons who only have the capacity to talk about people and their favorite TV show and, their vocabulary sucks. Your kid is going to mimic these people. If you take somebody like Dakota Fanning, who is this child actor, who essentially grew up on movie sets around adults her whole life, she's so mature. If you you know watch her speak, she's essentially been able to bypass all the negative and detrimental characteristic traits that teenagers pick up along the way in high school. So if you could somehow bypass that as well, I think you might be better off in the long run for it. Oh, God. So when you have people that are forced to talk about other people, then it kind of creates this detrimental competition with people where everybody's putting everyone down. It seems, I don't know if maybe that's Mm. like everybody's experience, but it seems like in my experience in high school, there was a lot of that, like writing on bathroom walls and putting this person down, talking bad about this person. It's because that they doesn't end in the workplace, though, Edward. Right? I mean, that, that but, but that's just because they have simple minds, right? Or um, wow. average minds. So, wouldn't it be better to, or what would be better to uh, separate them? Like, you know, homeschooling? Because the, the, the advantages. Oh, my God. Okay. The, the, well, you know, it's, I, I don't know. I'm, I'm not saying this is the, <laughs> the, the theory that I'm going to stick with, but it's like the advantages of being in school. Uh, are not necessarily outweighed the disadvantage of being in high school. Oh, man. Because there's this hierarchy and there's this popularity. And those are kind of important skills. You need to deal with shitty people. You need to deal with uh, competition. You need to deal with people uh, talking behind your back. And those actually build important skills in your life. But, I mean, they can actually take a lot of wind out of people's sails and derail them in life if you're constantly getting put down and judged by the way you look and is there any kind of solution that you could think of maybe homeschooling is not the system because then the teachers would be probably be their parents and the parents probably wouldn't be around because they're at work <laughs> and especially if, this economy right yeah and then if you have like you know private teachers well how many people can afford that it's like well maybe a bunch of us can pool our money together and you know how about you know me and you will pull money together and we'll get uh one teacher to teach our kids hey can i get on that yeah sure next thing you know you've got a classroom and this is kind of exactly like high school get a yeah. group of people i, I think so that, i think we can recognize that there's an it's important to to help children or help teenagers or whatever age group you want uh, kind of foster and nurture 
their minds. So, you know, because they're very flexible minds when, when they're young, they can learn quickly and they can adapt quickly. And that, that's a great thing about, uh, about kids in general. And take that and help them develop their ability to learn for one thing. And then when you mentioned this earlier about exposing them to various different ideas and uh, different cultures and and different aspects of our world, whether it's sciences, the natural sciences, politics, to just give them the experience of, hey, there are these wonderful things about our world. Um, you might be interested in these, you might not be, but we're just going to expose this to you regardless. Okay, I think there's an it, that's important. Okay, and whether or not you do that uh, from in in a private school, in a public school, home school, I don't know. I don't know what the best system is. It, it, it's just important to to give them that experience, right? Now, if you say that there are some really bad things that happen in high school, well, of course, but I don't know if it if if the high school experience is, is detrimental because there's also these fantastic things where you can learn to cooperate with other people. Think about team sports. It's fantastic. Excellent. Uh, a lot of service programs like volunteer programs you can have. Uh, leadership programs within schools. They can really teach them to, you can be a peer leader to learn how to lead as well as follow at the same time. These are great. Giving, giving them experience in student government. But aren't the only people that take advantage of those are people that would seek those types of things out in the first place? Mm, possibly, but I guess you, if you don't even know that these things exist, you'd have zero chance of. of I happen to agree that, with right? that. Yeah. So, uh, if just being exposed to the existence of this program gives you a chance that you might go and participate, and that's that's one part of it. Exposing people is one part of it. Uh, the second part of it is to have a structure where you have to get things done on a time frame. Yeah, forces people that aren't don't have that discipline, and a lot of people never get that discipline. But especially t uh, teenagers might not have that mental discipline to sit down and read uh, Shakespeare without someone telling them that they have to read Shakespeare. So yeah. it, it puts them on a schedule and it forces them to do it. So just to, to, to say, hey, there's a guy named Shakespeare here who wrote a lot of great plays. You should check him out. That's well, one thing. to the movie Anonymous, it might not have been. I, I only start. Yeah, well, <laughs> I, I'm only 15 minutes in that, into that movie. But yeah, I get, I get your point. But like, you know what I mean? Because like a lot of people wouldn't be able to have the mental discipline to, to do an online master's degree, for instance. Sure. Because there's after no they one get... whipping your butt to exactly. finish it, right? Right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, you, I think you hit the nail on the head. There's... But, um, a motivation and procrastination is such a huge, ah, just a downfall of our society. And it goes beyond just high school. I mean, just look at your, your colleagues at, you know, at work or, or just your friends in general. How many of them have this wonderful potential to do so many great things, but they're just going to put it off till tomorrow or the next day and the next day. Oh yeah, and and before you know it, that's two years later. They haven't done anything, right? Or they wake up and they're fifty and they haven't done anything with their life. Oh my God, that's just really sad. There's uh, an interesting uh, TED talks by a guy named uh, Ken Robinson, and he wrote a book called uh, The Element. And in it, he talks about how um, the school system is. Well, he doesn't talk about this in Element, but he talks about this in the TED talks where the school system okay. is based on a lot of archaic notions from 
hundreds of years ago that don't really make sense. We don't really challenge them. One of those is the uh, the fact that we group kids based on age. That seems kind of arbitrary. That is arbitrary. The other thing he says, um, he says this in, in the book, The Element, and he actually does talk about it. Uh, the opening of The Element has a story about this kid who is disruptive in class, can't really seem to focus, pay attention. So they take her to a bunch of doctors and she... Um, Everyone diagnoses her with uh, ADHD, wants to oh, no. dope her up. No. Uh, the, the mom wisely says, no, I don't want to put right. my kid on that. Uh, I'm going to take her to 7th or 8th doctor the, down the line. Yeah, yeah. And the doctor, uh, you know, had a conversation with the, the mom and the kid, um, invited the mom. like, you know what, mom, why don't you just step outside with me for a minute? I want to talk to you privately. And we'll just yeah. let, my, there, you let your kid sit in this office. Yeah. Before they left, he turns on the radio. They get outside. And they close the door. Mom's go. what's the problem, Doc? He says, just watch. Watch your daughter. Yeah. And the daughter gets up and she starts uh, moving around. And it's like, there's nothing wrong with your daughter. She's a dancer. <laughs> right? And then they immediately took her out of normal school and they put her into uh, another school with a bunch of other kids that were just like her, yeah. that just like to dance. Yeah. And this person turned out to be the most... Um, respected and uh, successful Broadway choreographer. She produced Cats and Phantom of the Opera and all this kind of stuff. So that's kind of like an example of how you could kind of tailor your education to the kid rather than forcing them through this kind of meat grinder where you just kind of put all these kids through the same process, right? right? right. So not everybody's going to turn out like that kid. Right. Maybe there's a dancer that's going to be not productive in society. Right. Okay. Right. Or maybe there's people that don't have their element, as Ken Robinson suggests. Maybe they oh, don't have yeah. their passion. So what do you do with those kids? Wow. Wow. That's uh, that's interesting. I think going back to you, the first thing that you mentioned about that, how arbitrary age and schooling is, I actually 100% agree with you about that. Well, that's not my yeah. point. That's okay. Robinson's you can adopt. Point. You can take it as your own. All, all right. right. Anyway, it's all yours. And. Because if you look at, say, music or dance, uh, we'll, we'll talk about music, uh, say, piano or violin or whatnot. There is no age restrictions. You know, you, you learn and they, they, don't, they don't tell you you have to take a year to learn this or two years. You can learn it in six months or three years. Whatever, you know, your motivation and your skill allows. And so you have little kids under 10 finishing grade 10 and you have people that are... 40 doing grade three and it's okay right it's okay because we recognize that you there's no timeline there's no schedule for this you do this for your enjoyment some people do it for their lives what whatever right and i'll give you another example a lot of the tutoring classes say kumon kumon you ever you ever heard of kumon math all right so it's just an extra math tutoring program is huge in japan there's no age restriction for these things. You could be, um, you could be six years old and be at the the fifteenth level or, or what whatever. It doesn't matter. And I think our learning really, ideally, should be geared towards the individual. Okay, and that's why when you're saying maybe we should homeschool everyone, I thought, hey, sure, okay, maybe I don't know. That'd be great as long as the teachers know what they're doing and you can afford it. Okay, whatever. Um, but it's a practicality issue. You'd have to have so much resources set into assessment. And you'd have to have like an individual teacher pretty much for every kid. I mean, that'd be amazing if we could do that. It's just not practically effective, unfortunately, at this time. Maybe in the future with technology, 
using uh, computer algorithms or whatever that they'll actually be the computers will be actually be able to tell how quickly you learn okay or have like a hologram teacher holographic lectures yeah i don't know individualized so you have learning the exactly the same lecture at any time you just press a button and your teacher starts speaking sure. you can press pause go you to the go washroom. as fast as you right. as you can you know once those self-learning you talking about those online master's courses or whatnot right maybe you can speed through that uh i'm sure that technology can be developed to accommodate that right but then you get into the situation where all right there's always going to be that top two or three percent crazy motivated people that's going to try to finish 10 grades in a year okay and now is that really the kid or is that their insane parents i don't know and how damaging would that be right i don't know so that's just something to think about but if a few people are pushed to their limit and they finish that but the bulk of so that would be kind of the downside put that in the negative column but the positive would be this overwhelming uh you know sense that you're you know learning things that are fun at your pace and you're not competitive and and people aren't trying to beat you up at lunch all this <laughs> kind of stuff so from like a utilitarian standpoint that might be a better thing you know the greatest good for the greatest number of people possibly <laughs> i don't know possibly possibly uh i certainly would love to learn that way you know if i were a kid i'd be, oh, I'd be just reading about everything and i think i think that's why i gravitated actually towards medicine you, and you might go what but you have all these courses and things that you have to learn and whatnot. I say, that's true. When I was in medical school, yeah, that's true. You, they, and even residency and all those. And afterwards, they give you, here, these are, these are generally the types of things you need to learn. But nobody tells you and gives you this book and says, memorize this. Because you can't really. And, and uh, so you, you take a lot of time just learning about everything it's the entire process is self-learning and you do it at your own pace and nobody's telling you oh wait hold on did you read chapter 54 and nobody's nobody's harping on you but the test will kind of be the the, the iron fist wouldn't it you know there's a test coming up in two weeks that's going to make you read chapter 15 or whatever chapter you said well the exam for me kind of came after five years <laughs> and you can't... what do you mean there's only, there's not exams along the way in med school well in med school there is but not in residency right okay so meds med school yeah med school med school is just like dude everyone it's not hard it's just about yeah there's there's exams and those things but they're not they're not difficult right uh the real work comes when you have to treat patients you have these these kids that are super smart and they do great on those medical school exams and they get score really high marks then you that's in their first two years the didactic years all right then in their third and fourth years of medical school um, you take them out and you bring them to the ward on the hospital and so you ask little johnny oh i shouldn't say little johnny i say med student johnny hey johnny what are the what's the differential for mr johnson's disease well i think it could be hypertension due to these causes and it lists off 10 things and then and then uh, you say so what do you want to do for this patient they get stuck they don't know and he said well the book says that you can do this 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 and he said no 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 i i want you to tell me what you would do for our patient right now and they don't know because 
the, the they don't have that practical knowledge they don't they they don't really know what's important to our patient didn't spend any time talking to them didn't really learn what's important to our, for a patient and they get tripped up you see that time and time again where that book knowledge doesn't necessarily translate into what makes a really good doctor right and so yeah you can test all you want and yes there's tests that test is knowledge base and that's important um, but that's not never the hard part the hard part is when you get onto the wards and you are evaluated by your by your mentors and and, and your superiors about how effective you are in the real world and and to me that's what's that's what is really important because I'm not going to hire somebody who's going to score in the top percentile for a book exam when they don't have compassion or they don't have an ability to communicate with patients or all the patients say that this person has terrible bedside manners. I never want that person on my team. So what's the ratio? Like, Would you take someone with amazing bedside manner, amazing compassion, but is a C student in terms of memorizing stuff of the textbook? How much... Well, there are no C students, though. So, oh. Because you'd fail. Oh, okay. Yeah. Uh, so... So, pass, so, so the pass is typically above 75%. It's not like school. Oh, okay. The okay. school is like 50%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like you don't want a 50% doctor because that's just dangerous, right? Right. Okay, I see. So you, you, that makes sense. Yeah, so the... Yeah, so all, when I, all the base knowledge is... As long as you pass the exams, you, that means you're pretty good. Okay. I, th- I don't think most people understand that actually the pass mark, the bar is actually pretty high. Right. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that totally makes sense. This puts you a little bit at ease, a little less afraid. <laughs> well, there's some people in this world that are just really confident in themselves, and it yeah. might be unfounded confidence. Yeah. But I would think that that skill would be so beneficial. Like in your example with this med student, yeah. uh, if someone would just wing it, like, what would you do for this? And they immediately come up with, oh, I would do this, this, and this. And they sound really confident. Are like, they right or wrong? Well, but the, but the thing is, that isn't there, no, there's a few things that could be right in that scenario, right? Because you said the book says this, this, and this. Yeah, yeah. And then you're like, no, 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 what would you do for this guy? You could just pick one of those. Oh, you know, what I would do is administer this, uh, this dosage, and I uh, would check back on them in an hour. How's that sound? That sounds about right. But the other, the guy who said it was just thinking, oh, I'm so glad he didn't follow up because I just, you know, made that up. I have no idea. But he sounded like really confident. And whereas a lot of other people, certain people in this world, they won't do something unless they're 100% sure. And, yeah. And I, I, think, I think you're right. I think it spans across every single field. Can it be beneficial in circum, certain circumstances? Yeah, you could probably, if you're in training and you can BS your way out of one or two situations, but it'll catch up to you. Because it'll just be eventual uh, eventuality when I just say something like, all right, would you care to explain why you want to do that? And if you don't know, then you're stuck. Yeah. Right? And so I always say that if it's you, – you don't, you don't want to talk about things where you don't have the knowledge and, and the expertise. And, and that's why you know, I, I'm very quick to say I actually don't know. But we can find out. And – and yeah, I think some of the things that we teach um, the med students there or the junior residents and residents and whatnot are things like you have to be confident when you talk or else no one will listen to you. 
But when you do speak, you have to speak on things that you actually have an authority on and that you do know. And some things that we do in, in, in the course of their training is to really probe just how deep is your knowledge. And we keep pushing. Why? 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 It's mainly because for them to actually know where are the limits of their knowledge and 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 their practical limits right because you don't have to know everything about everything and and to be able to say actually yeah i do know this i can talk about this confidently right because my my mentor just grilled me out about this and i was able to answer everything or actually i need to do some more reading because i don't know and uh or he says or somebody could say i'm actually not very comfortable uh, talking to patients about this area maybe i need more practice right that communication skills maybe oh gosh actually i'm not commu- uh maybe i'm not very good at reading how my patients are feeling right and maybe i need more uh, experience in that area and the training is built to to help i help students identify what are their areas of weaknesses and to encourage their strengths and to say hey you can you can do this you know is there something in place uh where you can practice having a conversation about something like hey man can i uh, do you have yes. five minutes i i, I want to practice tell me about that yes absolutely um so the i guess this probably goes all the way back to to med school so they have practice uh, clinical skills sections and as part of it you practice interviewing patients and these are standardized patients so for example i i volunteer my time to pretend like i am a 75 year old gentleman with an enlarged prostate okay and i sit down and you're the young enthusiastic med student you come and go hey mr smith i'm here to talk about your prostate I'll be like, oh, I don't really want to talk about my prostate. And he goes, but I know you've got a big prostate and that's a big problem. Yeah, and maybe my scenario, I'm, I'm trying to, I'm more, maybe the scenario is built for you to try to recognize that I'm depressed, you know? And that's the exercise. And a lot of, some people would completely get that. Hmm, you know, I've mentioned the word prostate 25 times and Mr. Smith doesn't seem to care about that. Maybe there's something wrong. Right? And the excellent uh, student that's got fantastic empathy skills or, or the social awareness skills, after the second time they say prostate, and I'm totally disinterested, will be able to pick up that, hey, Mr. Smith, there's something wrong, else wrong with Mr. Smith. Let's focus in on that, right? And, and so, yeah, there, there are standardized patients for them to practice these skills on. Do you think that, uh, I know for me in some jobs where I've, I've worked at a job for, you know, five years and, uh, I should know the answer to something yeah. and I don't. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's like, <laughs> it's like, uh, I'm, I'm now embarrassed to ask a supervisor because, because right. ne- my ego oh, yeah, yeah. won't allow me to, um, to expose myself like that because okay. they, because they're going to look down at me. Hey, you should know this. Why don't you know this? So I'd imagine as a doctor, if you're in for four or five years yeah. and there's something like, Oh man, I, I really don't know about this, yeah. but I can't let anybody else know that I don't know that. So do you so just, is that a problem? Like what do well, you do with that? Yeah. Do you, first of all, is, does that ever come up and well, maybe you don't know. And then second of all, like, do you just read 
because you can't like, hey, can I practice uh, oh. my my speak speech about the common cold? There's something that's super easy <laughs> that's like, well, you don't know about the common cold, like you know something. Oh my gosh! Uh, so you practice on like a friend, or does that? Do you think that will ever come up, or do you think that ever does come up? Uh, Probably not, right? Because there's because there's a no. I, I reckon I, that could be a problem actually, and you know, okay. Uh, I think that I think that that's probably a wide bigger problem than you you or I recognize actually because we don't really know what other people don't say they don't know I guess right. if you will um, there's certainly things that uh, I don't know uh, do I think I know th- areas things in my specialty that are easy and that I shouldn't yeah because you deal with it on a daily basis right and and I'm lucky because I've been exposed to a lot of different things in my area, in, in, in my field. But I can imagine that if I, if I go to a smaller community, right, not at an academic center, not at a hospital which is really acute and got lots of things going on, yeah, I actually might really forget about a, a lot of things. And would I, and then speaking only for myself, because I don't know about other people, would I feel very embarrassed to ask someone about something that I think I should know. Yeah, I, I would damn well feel very embarrassed. And I'd go and look in my books and look up the answers. So, yes, I think that is a problem. Um, unless you have a fantastic relationship with um, your peers. Right? And you recognize that we're all human. And um, and I'm, I'm lucky to work in a, in a group that's very open. And we talk about everything. And... Uh, in a lot of ways, we prop each other up and uh, recognize that if you if someone asks for help, it's not necessarily because they're stupid or don't know, but rather that they value your expertise in that particular area, right? Right. I and, see what you're saying. And so I it, I think it just depends how you look at. It. But I really and I do recognize it's possible. It just depends on your work environment. Yeah. So, yeah, on a previous podcast, uh, Sarah and I talked about uh, the Hippocratic Oath. Oh, yeah. So It's changed a lot. From what I understand, it's, it's um, an, a pledge to, you know, be honest and ethical. Yes. Uh, but the person that swears to be honest and ethical, a person who's not honest and ethical, um, to, to promise that they will be is kind of meaningless. meaningless, right? Yes, no, I, So I what agree. is the point of the oath? Is it just a tradition, a custom, or? Oh, I think it's... I think previously when we lived in a world where I think religion was a lot, a larger part of people's lives. Okay. You know, taking an oath, you know, really was really right. serious, right? And upon pain of death of your soul. Yeah. And so people didn't, wouldn't take an oath or, or something, make an assertion that they will not lie. You know, that's the whole issue about placing your hand on the Bible, right? That's about your soul and the most important thing uh, uh, for a religious person, right? But if you're not religious, it means absolutely nothing. Is that kind of weird we still do that in, in the Canadian court system? How is that possible? How is it that we have uh, one book that we make everyone put their hand on and swear? It's because I think a lot of our... Yet we're a multicultural society. Of... of that our laws are built on on really biblical principles right i think it's if you look at our, our forefathers and and how they found our country uh, 
a lot of the laws are, are based on Western biblical thinking, right? And yeah, you're right. And uh, we live in a multicultural society now. And why do we do that? I, I don't know the answer to that. I don't know. Does it bother you that certain things that are obviously flawed, uh, people aren't kind of willing to recognize that they're flawed and recognize to, to change it. I, I find this constantly where you, you, you have a kind of a process where you have to be delicate when you talk to supervisors because you don't want any kind of negative repercussions. You, there's this, uh, in, in the 48 laws of power, they talk about, or uh, Robert Greene talks about the, um, you never outshine your master. So it's kind of like, you know, you you can't unless you're trying to outshine your master, you show the master's master. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> but it seems to be that you can't necessarily go into a company and tell everybody what's wrong with it, even though your suggestions might be right. There's kind of like this backlash that you'll receive, and there's an, an arrogance to assume that you know why things are the way they are, right? Well, even have somebody receptive, very true. But even if to have people receptive to your idea, you'll find a lot of resistance, right? Typically. Yeah. Why is that? Change is hard. Change is hard because when you, when you, when you go and you try to tell somebody that, Hey, there's a better way of doing something, right? There's a more efficient way, faster, uh, uh, way of doing whatever you're inherently telling them that they're doing it quote unquote wrong. Right. No matter how delicately you, you, you're super skilled in terms of your delivery, you're still telling them that they're not doing it right. They're doing it wrong. And people are going to, people are still people. They're not, they're not robots. So they're going to feel bad about it. This is why we don't tell people, follow my lead. I've figured some things out. Do as I do. And, and, you know, logically, if we were all robots and we have no feelings, then yeah, then we should be able to go anywhere and just say, bam, I figured it out do what I do, everything, just follow my lead, I got it, all right? And then we go, actually, yeah, you're right, your way is more efficient, we should do what you do. I completely ignore that, I guess I've been screwing up for the past 20 years of my life. And I guess that kind of goes back to your original discussion point about why, you know, there's somebody that's homeless on the street, and you you come there, and you, you want to help them out, and they might not want help, because deep down inside, they wouldn't want to recognize that they screwed up some part of their life and that they that they did it wrong well yeah that's why i said in the example of the jungle why it'd be really easy for me to take someone's advice or someone's lead because i know nothing i guess what i failed to consider was that you know in a civilized society it's not that we don't know anything we were both growing up in this society and you know much more than I do, for instance, let's say. So when you offer me your help, it inherently implies that I've failed or I've, I'm not as good as you or something like that. Whereas in the jungle scenario, I didn't grow up in the jungle scenario, so I'd be immediately receptive to your advice. But if we both grew up in a jungle and I was sitting there shaking and you were, you know, had fire and shelter and all that stuff, I could see how that would be insulting. And you never want to insult people, right? I, I just think that uh, I just, it really depends on uh, you'd have to really find out a bit more about that person right? they might have a very good reason a really sad story about why they're on the street it might be completely legitimate and super sad and I don't know what why they would refuse your help you know when when you're we're, 
I, I didn't actually give her help. I was oh, thinking of oh, giving her help. <laughs> I thought you actually went and helped her. Oh, I gave her pizza. Oh, okay, okay. And then right. I walked away. Okay. And I thought, hey, maybe I should have done more. Oh, okay. But how much, how much do like, I want to... Why would she like... How much time do I want to invest yeah. in this kid? Because she seemed really sweet. Yeah. And I, you know, I'm like, you know, I could maybe change this person's life. Yeah. I mean, maybe that does sound arrogant, but it's like... You probably could have helped. But I mean, and I'm like, if I gave her a hundred bucks, what, that's not going to change that's her life. Helpful. But if I could be like, you know, listen, what do, what do you want out of life? Where do you want to be in five years? I yeah. will tell you how to get that. Yeah. Not saying that I'm an expert on life, but oh, yeah. I think I might be able to help this person at least on some level. And I'm sure. Fair assumption. Could've. I mean, that's, that's very altruistic. And certainly most people don't think that way. And, and, and the fact that the, the thought even crossed your mind, I mean, that's great. Um, but Truth be told, she very might might well think that there's nothing wrong with her life and that she's happy doing that. I, I tried I to don't know. I try to uh, help like people. Or I, I used to try to help people like my friends when yeah. I see they're not, you know, they're struggling with maybe their their health. I'd be like, you know, I could get you on a, a weightlifting program. You don't need to go to the gym if you're intimidated. I can set you up with a home kind of helping a, me, man. A ghetto workout. <laughs> well i could but or like you know if you're not motivated i can tell you how to motivate yourself do you write to-do lists yeah. do you uh do you have a, a dirty apartment because that could really mess you up i've learned in life that if you have a clean apartment for instance you can organize your thoughts better and maybe that person didn't know that so i try to tell people and get them on the right path in all mm. my experience not one person has done anything i've ever said so i've concluded that people do not want your help. I'm not trying to be like a condescending in any way. Because they don't want to admit that they're doing exactly. something wrong. You cannot change a person. They don't want to admit that. That's, that's crazy, crazy, right? Yeah, that is a little... If you, when you put it that way, it is a little crazy. It's crazy, yeah. It is a little crazy. But maybe that's... Hmm, maybe that's why... Oh, okay, I'll give you an example. You know what? That Actually, now I think about it, that, that's very true. Okay. Let's just say my boss's boss's boss, doctor, uh, super fantastic person, very hard worker. And she doesn't have to listen to anyone, okay? And you kind of wonder, what makes this person so effective? Clearly, she can't know everything. And I was just having having lunch earlier today uh, with a a couple of colleagues, and and one of them mentioned, you know, this this person uh, just this morning was saying, what do you think about this? Not just kind of just shooting the shit, kind of what are you thinking? She's actually taking notes. And I said, wait, wait, hold up a second. She did what? Just taking notes. And I said, because I actually, two months ago, had a formal meeting with, with her about uh, um, career is- issues and, and, and direction and whatnot. And after about 15 minutes... She actually pulled out her notebook and she said, what are you, what do you think about this? So maybe the really powerful and very effective people are people that are willing to listen to everyone, listen to the ideas and opinions of everyone, no matter where they are, whether you know, you're a friend or a subordinate five levels below them or their superior. Right. That seems obvious to me. I mean, maybe that's where she, why she, why she's there. I have no idea. Yeah, like Henry Ford is um, a perfect example of that where it was in the book um, by Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich. And Napoleon told a story about Henry Ford, how in uh, a Chicago newspaper had called him ignorant 
and he sued the the paper for libel and they uh, brought him to court and they put him on the stand and asked him a bunch of just simple questions about you know uh, when did this happen how, how did this take place just to prove that he's ignorant he didn't know and he responds yeah i don't know the answers to those questions but at a push of a button i could summon anyone to my desk in my office that can answer all those questions and I don't need to clutter up my mind with those useless facts. So essentially he's outsourced a bunch of his knowledge to experts because he's willing to admit his own limitations. So he was kind of humbled in the, you know, he was humble in the fact that he didn't necessarily need to know those things. And he deferred his knowledge to other people. I think that's, I think that's good. And, and in my book, I talk about that where this guy is the CEO of a company, a billionaire, really successful but he has a sign up that says new ideas always welcome because mm. the person sweeping the floor might have an idea that could revolutionize the business. Right. Why say no to that? You, you know, if you have a company of um, whatever amount, even if it's uh, more than one person, they're going to have better ideas than you alone. Maybe it's, it's conceivable. Yeah. Right. Maybe yeah, not. Sure. Maybe. Oh, you have a, yeah. a company of 5,000 people, somebody who's, this is what I face in a lot when I am working, I usually have these entry level jobs, you know, I'm, I'm selling shoes in a mall or something like that. Sure. And nobody wants to hear your ideas, but Hey, I'm the guy on the front line. I'm, I'm actually here. I could, I have a different perspective than you in Toronto in your office. Yeah. But you're not going to listen to my idea cause I'm nobody. I think that's a problem, right? That's, if I was the CEO, that's just sad. I would call sad. people on a random basis or go down, like, hey, are you using this computer system? What's wrong with it? You need to go How on an undercover boss, my friend. I don't have a job. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, okay. I, I'm, I'm only familiar with the show because I happened to catch it on the plane. I know that sounds kind of douchey. Yeah. <laughs> I was on a plane. But yeah, I was on uh, the way back from Chicago a, a week ago. I, yeah. I caught that show it seemed a little fake to me oh it's I, totally fake I, I called bullshit immediately oh my god like come on every every single there's always say uh, you know the the few workers and one's got always some sob story about their family and certainly that's that's not funny but i mean it, it's horrible they need to make it but they need to that they they would take advantage of somebody's horrible family life medical situation and put it on a tv show and to make the ceo look at it like it's, it's a little sickening and there's always a young up-and-coming person who's got these fantastic ideas that the ceo's never heard of and you know yeah so i it's complete bullshit but you know that's that's essentially it where they're supposed to be quote-unquote listening to the frontline staff but mm. All right, I got nothing else. No way, you can't be tapped out. Well, I no, mean, I'm we we could go on all night. No, probably. Um, I try to have these things like around an hour. I don't know how long we've been talking, but oh, uh, you, I'm sure you'll edit out a bunch of stuff. Yeah, well, not too much. I, I liked a lot of the stuff you talked about. A lot of um, our podcasts. I don't actually end up talking that much. I'm more of a listener. I'm like the question. I pick people's brains yeah. because I don't get any knowledge out of hearing myself speak. I already know what I know. Yeah, fair uh, I want to know what you know. I want to ask what your opinions on homeless people oh, or got, your people. I on... got opinions. Yeah, so then I could formulate I my own opinion and abandon some flawed opinions that I have, or you know what I mean. Or maybe, yeah, there's actually a quote that I love. It's from John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, and 
I, I love this quote so much. I put it right in one of my books. I put it in the, my book Prodigy, which is not out yet, but it will be out. I put the, the entire quote right in there and I have it committed to memory. It says, if all mankind minus one were of one opinion and only one person were of the contrary opinion, mankind would be no more justified in silencing that one person than he, if he had the power, would be to justify silencing mankind. But the peculiar evil of silencing the expression of an opinion is that it robs the human race, posterity, as well as the existing generation, those who dissent from the opinion, still more than those who hold it. Because if the opinion is right, then they are deprived of the opportunity of exchanging error for truth. And if wrong, they lose what is almost a greater benefit, the clear perception and livelier impression of truth produced by its collision with error i love that wow wow that's uh that's interesting anyway well thanks so much for being on the podcast man i really uh, enjoyed it and i appreciate you uh, taking the time to do that so that concludes another episode of the edward mullen podcast if you enjoyed it you might enjoy my book the art of the hustle available on amazon as always for more information about me my book or even this podcast please visit my website edwardmullen.com